Well, as you see on the screen, this morning's sermon is titled Resurrection Hope. It's because Easter is a celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And, and through that resurrection, hope is provided to a world that is in desperate need of hope. It was President Snow in the Hunger Games that said, Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. The reality is that we all face various fears. And hope is what's needed to help us live in light of our fears. Hope promises that things will get better, even if it doesn't look like they're going to get better. This is why terrible sports teams are always excited for a high draft pick. Hope that maybe it will get better. That's why you go to a job interview. Hope that I could make some more money or, or have a better boss, that things could get better. This is why dating apps are so profitable. Hope that I could meet someone who actually gets me and will truly love me. You know, I, I, was, I was researching various things about hope this week, and uh, one of the more obscure ones, but somewhat interesting I found, was a study that was done on rats. I know it seems weird to talk about rats on Easter Sunday, but just bear with me for a second on this. They, they said there was, there was two groups of rats that they would toss into um, a bucket of water, and, and they would see how long they could swim for. And the, the one group, they would pull out periodically and drop them back down, and the other group, they would just leave. And, and the ones that they would periodically pull out, they would give a sense of hope, could swim for more than 24 hours. The group that never got a reprieve, they never had any hope that things would get better, they died within the hour. Hope is critical for living in light of the fears that we all face. You see, at the, the end of the day, it's not that people or communities are destroyed by bad things happening, by calamities or by catastrophes. Everyone faces those at one point in time in life or another. But what ends up being the truly destructive force is hopelessness. When you really believe that the circumstances you're facing now or the feelings you presently have aren't going to change, that they're permanent. The resurrection of Jesus Christ as it provides a promise, a guarantee of hope. It promises that your frustrations aren't permanent that your broken relationships aren't permanently broken, that the infestation of sin in my life and in yours isn't permanent. Notice this. It doesn't mean that the sin and the frustration and the brokenness is not real. It doesn't diminish them. It just promises a better future, something much better to come. I once heard of an up-and-coming musician who was hoping to be signed, and he got me a message from a, a major label that he was going to be signed, and it was kind of hit the jackpot. The payday was coming, and within the hour, this musician, in his joy, went out and got in his car and drove a lot faster than he should have and got pulled over and actually sent to prison for the night for going over 100 miles an hour. And the musician wrote that the night in prison was the best night of his life, despite being in prison of all places. Why? Because even though he was still making bad choices and his circumstances were terrible, he had hope 
that his life was about to get better, that he was going to be signed. You see, real hope of a better something to come, a better life to come, it enabled him to wait with joy and with perseverance. And it does the same for us as well. False hope, on the other hand, it it might actually be worse than real pain. When you have lots of promises of something better to come without any action to back them up. Sometimes that's worse than just admitting that you can't do anything about the predicament that you're in. Over time, you can begin to realize, maybe I thought I had hope, but I never really did have hope because it was a false hope. That to say, it's critical when we talk about resurrection hope in Jesus that you know that the hope is real. It's not a false hope. You've got to know that. So this morning, we'll see three realities from Luke 24. We're going to see real people, seek real evidence, and celebrate real hope. That's our three points this morning. See real people, seek real evidence, and celebrate real hope. Let's, let's start with the first one. We're going to see real people in this account. We're first introduced to the women, so I'd invite you to look back at your copy of God's Word. We'll go back to it frequently this morning, so I, I hope you'll just leave it open there in Luke 24 so we can go back. Uh, th- that's where all the authority lies, not, not in my words. Uh, let's look back at verse 1, though, of Luke 24. Here's what Luke wrote down for us. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Seeing real people in this account means we recognize that their Sunday morning started with grief. We come knowing the outcome that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't know that. So don't race past that reality of their Sunday morning. And I'm certain that even in a room of this size, as people come and you know that Jesus rose from the dead, there's a lot of grief that's being born in your heart. It's a strange paradox to feel that on Easter Sunday. Know that there are real people who began their Easter with significant grief as well. But I'm also drawn to the fact that it said in verse 1, they came at early dawn. It's an interesting little description Luke tags in there. Like, dawn seems to be pretty early most of the mornings I've experienced it. Like, why does he need to say early dawn? And if you think about where these ladies are at, Friday Jesus crucified, they seem to be his followers, his believers, They've been grieving Friday into the night. Saturday's the Sabbath. And so at the first possible moment, early dawn, they're going to offer their offerings to bring these spices. They weren't wasting any time. They'd been looking forward to this opportunity. They're getting out as early as possible. So you enter into their world of grief for, what, 36, 48 hours? They're coming immediately to the, to the tomb. Listen to what Kent Hughes would say about this. He says, as we consider the state of the Galilean women, we must not let our knowledge of the glorious revolution, revelation that awaited them dull us 
to the dark sackcloth covering of these women's souls. They were depressed, exhausted, mourning with no hope whatsoever. And yet, yet they encounter the most striking of conversations to follow that, right? Look back at, at Luke 24 again with me. Look at verse 5. Here's what Luke writes down, starting in verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So they have this conversation with the angels. And the angels say, hey, remember, Jesus told you this was going to happen. And it seems that they almost immediately did remember. So just think about this for a moment. As those women, they knew their Bibles such that when the angel said, remember, he said this, they knew Jesus' words. They said, you're right, he did say that. We were listening carefully. And they were quick to have faith and believe that the impossible had been made possible because God was with them. And not only did they know their Bibles, and not only were they quick to have faith, they were quick to go and tell somebody. But I wonder if in that just quick snapshot, you don't identify yourself this morning and say, Justin, maybe I need to be studying my Bible a bit more, knowing what it says or being quick to have faith, even when it's difficult, when I look at my present circumstances, to have faith that God is at work. He's not lost sight of me. Or perhaps you're a bit different. You say, I need to just be quick to go tell other people. I know what the Bible says. I've been living in it. And I've got faith that God is at work, but I'm slow to tell people. But may these ladies be an example to you of how to live the Christian life. Ground yourself in the word of God. Be quick to have faith in the God of the Bible and quick to go tell others. The next group that we are met with or we are introduced to, this real people, are the apostles. Look back at verse 10 of Luke 24. They seem to be more of skeptics. The the women were believers. They were exemplary, and the, the, the apostles, not so much. Verse 10, we read, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It's a bit of a strange thing to include, Certainly this this testimony here gives credibility to the Bible because if you're making up a story, the last thing you'll do is say the followers of Jesus didn't believe. The only reason you write that down is because it happened that way, right? And that phrase, idle tale, it seemed to them an idle tale, it's a word that would have been used in the medical community And uh, it was describing the wild talk of the delirium of the sick. You've lost your mind. And you just sort of discount it because they've been drugged and they're saying crazy things. And it's easy for us to maybe jump on these guys like, hey, why didn't you listen to Jesus? You were with him all this time. 
And certainly they should have listened to Jesus, but what the rest of the Bible tells us is that we're to have mercy on those who doubt. So actually, the exact quotation of Jude, chapter 1, verse 22, Jude writes, have mercy on those who doubt. Don't think yourself high and mighty. You've got it all together. See people with real questions about the God of the universe and hear the question and give it a good and a faithful answer and think through it. You see, the Bible invites your questions. The Bible invites your doubts. God is big enough and strong enough to hold your questions. They're not going to knock him down. So bring them. You've got questions about the Bible. I'd love to have a conversation with you this, this afternoon after the service. Send me an email sometime this week. I'd love to dialogue over that. In fact, the, the, the little uh, the bag I had up here at the beginning of the service, that's got a book in there called Who is Jesus? That answers many questions about who is this Jesus? And, and maybe you'd like to explore that, so you just pick one of those up on the way out. But what the Bible does is it doesn't merely invite your questions and your doubts. It also pushes you to act on them. This brings us to the the next character we meet, who is Peter. Look at verse 12 of Luke 24. Peter seems to be more of an investigator. Here's Here's what happened in verse 12. We read, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Just see the picture, right? The the women go to the tomb. They see that Jesus isn't there. The angels say, hey, remember he told you this was gonna happen. They quickly believe. They go and tell people. The apostles say, no, you guys, you girls have lost your mind. You've, you know, you've gone crazy. And Peter's over there thinking, I don't know. I, I gotta go check this out. I need some more information. And so he by himself, at least from Luke 24, goes and says, I gotta figure this out. I gotta see what's going on here. I gotta investigate. So it's not merely asking questions, but it's taking action on the questions you have. Because it's easy for us with our doubts, with our questions, to sort of get stuck in a rut, as it were. And we wonder about things, and what you see in Peter is a model of not just questioning things, that's good to do, but to pursue it, investigate it, seek good evidence. There is an, a noticeable absence, though, in these first, uh, in these characters we've met. There's, there's the women, there's the apostles, there's Peter. But nowhere in the narrative have we actually seen Jesus. Where's he at here? That brings us to our second point. Seek real evidence. We've seen the real people, and now we're going to seek real evidence. It's important that I scroll back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Luke had his purpose of writing that you could have certainty, that you could know the things that have been written. Look at, uh, it's on the screen, Luke 1, 3, and 4. This is how Luke opens his gospel. It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. He says, I'm going to invite you to seek good evidence, and it's layered throughout his entire gospel, that you can seek evidence to know that Jesus really lived, really died, and really rose again. And the reality is this, that if I'm going to live my entire life in light of Jesus Christ as being crucified on the cross and risen from the dead, I should be pretty sure about that. 
Right? This modern notion of blind faith really isn't something you find in the Bible. What the Bible pictures is a picture of foundation, a block of really strong evidence, a strong foundation for the house of your life, and with great evidence that Jesus is who he was, said he was, and did the things he said he did, God then calls us to take steps of blind faith, where you may not always see what he's doing, but it's always on the basis of really good evidence. And so I'm not asking you this morning to take a step of blind faith apart from the strong evidence, the foundation of your life of who Jesus is and what he did. In fact, Pastor Casey just read from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul would write. He said, hey, if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, Christianity is a joke. Man, get a better hobby than coming to church on Sunday morning. There's more fun stuff to do. If he didn't really rise from the dead, all of us are wasting our time. Now, that's exactly what you would not expect to find in a religious text. Right? It's a test of falsifiability. Here's how you disprove it. Here's how you can move on and do something actually meaningful with your life. So all over the Bible, you see this importance of seeking real evidence, good evidence. Here's what Ernest Wright would say. He said, in biblical faith, everything depends on whether the central events actually occurred or not. So what's the evidence? What's the evidence we're given here in Luke 24? Well, for the women, recall the evidence was given by the angel, said, remember, Jesus told you this was going to happen. He predicted it of himself. Perhaps they remembered his words in Luke 9. Maybe they were there for this. Luke 9.22 on the screen. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Maybe they were there when he said that. Said, hey, it was coming. Or maybe it was in Luke 18, where he said, For he will, the Son of Man, this is, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. See, Jesus said this about himself over and over. He predicted it would happen. For them, that was the evidence that was being sought. And all over Luke 24, there's this recurring theme of remembering what Jesus had said, and not only what he had said, but what the whole Old Testament had said about him. So there, there's three different kind of minor stories in Luke 24. There's the one we have today of the, the resurrection account, and then there's Jesus on the road to Emmaus talking with some disciples. And then there's Jesus coming back to his disciples for a dinner party of sorts. And in all three of those, they come back to, here's what Jesus said. We just saw it in Luke 24 with this account. But look back at your copy of God's word. Let's jump down to verse 25. This is in the next little snapshot, the next narrative. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two of those disciples. Hear how he comes back to his own words. He said, and he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The evidence is God said this was going to happen. And then the next Snapshot, come down to verse 44 of Luke 24, the same exact thing happens. 
This is when Jesus is with the disciples. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, the clear point Luke is making here at the end of his gospel is that God always keeps his promises. When he speaks, he acts. It always happens. You can take it to the bank. And it's not just Jesus' own words when he predicted these things, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. Yes, there are prophecies. Perhaps you've heard of those. But there are also all sorts of what we call prefigurements, a figure pointing us to Christ that's not quite an explicit prophecy. There was Adam back in the garden. He failed his test in the garden, and it led to death. Jesus in the garden passed a much tougher test that led to life, to prefigurement. We're told that Jonah in the belly of the well went in for three days and was spit out to new life as a a prefigurement to point us ahead and say Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days and we brought back to new life. You see, you can read the Old Testament, you can read the whole Bible in in a kind of a moralistic, rules-based way. Hey, don't be like Adam, don't eat the fruit, do a better job of keeping God's rules. Don't be like Jonah, don't run from God, make sure you tell people on the way. And that's kind of the point of the Bible, you and what you need to do for God. And that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to point out who God is and what he's done for you in Christ to redeem you because we're all Adam. We all eat the fruit. We all think we know a better way than God. We're all Jonah. We all run from him. We all want to do it our way, and we all need to be saved. Don't miss these things. And In Luke 24, we get such a clear picture to help us read our Bibles well and not drift into a rules-based form of living, that once we're saved, yes, we're saved to a new life to pursue holiness. The Bible is most fundamentally and primarily about God and what he's done for you. You might be here, say, Justin, I I don't know that I actually believe what the Bible says yet, and so it's interesting how you can tell me how the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus, but it feels like circular logic. I get that. So let's look at the evidence, because we're talking about evidence, that Peter would seek. Peter said, yes, I know maybe that Jesus said this, but I want to go see it. Maybe you identify a bit more with him. And of course, it's impossible for us to go back 2,000 years and run to the tomb and investigate it in the same way that Peter did. That's simply not possible for us. But what we can do is look at historical sources and historical evidence that can be documented and piece it together and do our best to see, is there really good evidence for this? So even if you don't believe the Bible, we can still come together and say that some of the most well-attested historical facts from all antiquity point to good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Virtually every scholar of that time period agrees that Jesus really died, well, he really lived, and really died by crucifixion. Virtually every scholar believes that his disciples believe they saw him risen from the dead. Virtually every scholar believes there were skeptics who didn't believe in Jesus, yet saw him and were immediately changed. 
So you could sort of push back and say, well, maybe he didn't really die. They were the most skilled executioners in the history of the world. Or you could push back and say, well, I don't know, maybe the disciples made it up. Yeah, they made up the story so that they could be tortured and die a terrible death. It's not the kind of story I'd want to make up. I'll make up a story that helps me have a better life now. Say, so maybe, maybe they just dreamed it. Maybe they hallucinated it. They wanted it to be true. They missed him so much. But then you've got to explain why people who hated Jesus, who killed people who believed in Jesus, saw him and were changed. Certainly they weren't dreaming it. They weren't hallucinating it. See, the, the, the historical evidence, it doesn't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. No, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is there's really good evidence, and if you're not familiar with that, and you're still wondering if you believe the claims of the Bible, I want to invite you to investigate that evidence. Because it's real. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He was, and he is God. And that matters. Here's why that matters. Because when he says there's hope, when he promises it, it has to be real hope. We talked a minute ago about how fake hope can be crushing. It can be worse than any form of pain. So because Jesus really rose from the dead, when he promises real hope, there's actually real hope there. Maybe you think about it this way. I heard a story about a, uh, an NFL player. He came, got drafted, came to his first uh, practice or whatever, and this was back when they were writing physical checks, and the check was sitting on his, his chair in the locker room, and he walked in, and he, he opened it up. It has his name on, and it has more zeros than he's ever seen before in his life, and he looks at it, and he says, I'm rich! Did he have any money in his bank account yet? No? It's not like he got some gold coins that had value themselves. It was a worthless piece of paper. But how could he say, I'm rich, when he had no money in his account yet because the signature of the owner of the NFL team was on the check and it guaranteed the promise that was made? He said, this is real. And when you see that this is real, that my name backs it up, then it brings you to celebrate. Say, I'm rich, I have it. That's why it matters that Jesus' resurrection be real. So that when he says there's hope there, there's new life there, you say it's the signature of Jesus and he's better than any NFL owner and he always holds up his end of the bargain. He always keeps his promises. That brings us to the, the third point this morning that we've seen real people, we've sought real evidence and we will celebrate real hope. We will celebrate real hope. I've begun to hint at this, I've not yet made it explicit, but the hope that Jesus offers is not, it is not a better life now. Some of us want to go to Jesus seeking more wealth or better health or greater prosperity. That's the hope that Jesus brings, some would say. Friends, if you hear teaching like this, you need to run from it. But you also need to be on the lookout for that kind of belief in your own heart. Because it's easy for us to see Jesus as a sort of genie in a bottle that makes things better in the here and now. And that's simply not what he promises. In fact, he says just the opposite. 
John 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Yeah, you're gonna have a hard time. It's gonna be difficult, but there's something better to come. Or Peter, we saw him here. What would he write in his epistle, 1 Peter 4, 12? Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange is happening. No, it's totally normal. But rejoice, he would say, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, because something better is coming. That's the hope that he offers. It's a bit like this. You're, you're teaching a kid to ride a bike. They're pedaling. They're, they're trying to ride. You just took the training wheels off. They're looking down because everything so, seems so scary. And the more they look down, the more they wobble and either wreck or hit a car that's right in front of them. If you are seeking hope by looking down, you are bound to be let down. But you tell a kid as they learn to ride their bike, don't look down, look ahead. See what's out in front of you, and then you'll be able to ride your bike. And hope in Jesus is a bit like that. Don't look down, look ahead. See what's to come, not what the present is, and celebrate it. Friends, because of Jesus' resurrection, there's hope that if you're in Christ, you've been saved from the penalty of sin, that hell has been defeated, and that is not going to be your destination. There's real hope that you are in the present being saved from the power of sin. Not just I've been saved from hell, but the, the, the power of sin over my life is being broken and I wonder this morning, this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, if you've been trapped, you've been stuck in a pattern of sin for years, perhaps decades, and you wonder if there's really resurrection power to break the power of sin in your life today. And yes, there is. I'd urge you to claim 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And believe there's real power through the Spirit, because of Jesus' resurrection, to break the power of sin in my life. Not only is, he, is there hope, the penalty of sin's been broken, the power of sin is being broken, but the very presence of sin you would be delivered from. Oh, what a day that will be. <laughs> not just the penalty, not just the power gone, there's no sin present anywhere. Oh, praise God. There's real hope of that. But as we start to talk about this real hope, we've also got to recognize that not everyone is destined for real hope. And there are plenty of churchgoers in Jesus' day that he called out. He said, you think you know the hope, you think you're following me, but you're not really following me. So we'd be wise to heed his words and to remember that being a Christian isn't about being here on Easter. It's not about tossing some money in the plate or going on a missions trip. I was just talking to my friend, Ed Gladfelter. He shared last week uh, at, our, at our prayer meeting. He had been over in Ukraine bringing aid for the refugees. And in Ukraine, there's a, a strong influence of the Eastern Orthodox Church where the Christianity is marked by tradition, we do these things on Christmas. We do these things on Easter. This is kind of the, the tradition here. And so the, the Christians there stopped calling themselves Christians in the same way because they got layered in with the tradition. They called themselves the repenters. So I would be called Justin the repenter. As a way of saying, 
My Christianity isn't a mark of traditionalism. It's an act of repentance. Repentance meaning turning. I was going my way, and each day I wake up and I actively turn and follow Jesus. Friends, I wonder which direction is your life pointing this morning? Towards yourself? Yes, you you come to church, you do these things, but would you be called, Justin, the repenter? Is that the pattern of your life? I wonder, some of you, you say, I'm not sure what does that exactly look like, Justin? Well, Jesus died and rose again to save people and make people new, but not merely in an individual sense, but to create a new people in the plural, a new community. So Justin, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, but I'm not with his team. I'm not part of a local body. It's like you want to be on the team, but not wear the jersey, now, eventually, you might say, well, you were a free agent for a little while, and then you know, maybe the Colts signed you this offseason or something. But if somebody's been a free agent for an extended period of time, years at a time, you start to say, man, maybe you're not actually on the team. You're never putting the jersey on. You need to commit to follow Jesus with a local body. Maybe it's a commitment you need to make to turn, to follow Jesus, and not to be on the team, but to get in the game, to exercise your gifts. Maybe it's a a commitment to claim resurrection power in your life to put sin to death. Maybe that's what it looks like for you to be a repenter. And no, I'm actually gonna claim his power instead of trying to do it on my own. There's more here, though, than just resurrection power for change in our own individual lives. For those in Christ, there's hope of real peace, of all things being made new, of new resurrected bodies that don't have the same diseases and maladies that we feel so acutely today. There's real hope of every tear being wiped away. Oh, we look forward to that. I'm reminded of Johnny Erickson Tata. Perhaps you know her story, maybe you don't. She, at age 17, had a diving accident and crushed her spinal column. She's been in a a wheelchair all her life. And she wrote of this resurrection hope, looking forward to one day being in the presence of Jesus. And I, I love the way she has penned this. Listen to what Johnny says. She says, I always say that, in a way, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able... I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell. (laughs) But we look ahead saying, I look forward to that day when all of these things that I'm experiencing now, the brokenness of sin, the sickness, the disease, it's gone and it will be. There will be no more dictators invading foreign countries. Real peace will reign. 
No more poverty, no more injustice, no more sexism, no more racism. Real justice will reign. No more rewriting of history, no more rewriting of morality. True righteousness will reign. No more death, no more pain, no more tears. All things will be made new. And because of these realities, because of them, we have hope. We can persevere with joy, with gladness. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's the reality in my life. I, I would guess it's, it's maybe this way in yours a little bit as well. I'll start to wrap up here. Sometimes these things feel like truths we affirm on Easter Sunday, but during the week a little abstract, a little distant, a little bit too other, don't they? It can feel that way at times. So instead of clinging to those, we cling to something that's a little more tangible, a little bit more in the, the here, in the now. Maybe, maybe this thing, it's, it's not the best thing, but it'll get me through the day. It'll get me through the week. And I end up clinging to that and holding on to that a little more tightly than I should. It reminds me, uh, it reminds me of an episode in I Love Lucy, if I can say it this way, where Lucy and Ricky are in the living room. And, uh, and Ricky says to Lucy, Lucy, what are you doing out here? And she says, I, I lost my earring. She says, he says, where? She says, in the bedroom. And she says, well, Ricky says, what, what are you doing out here? And she says, well, the lighting's better. <laughs> and I wonder if in a way that's not how we live our lives. The lighting's better here in this world. And you can see it. And you know that you're not actually going to find the thing that you're missing, the lost earring. But at least you can see what you're reaching for. And it won't satisfy. We know that. But it's just so much easier to, to reach out and touch that which is right in front of our eyes. And this Easter, Easter 22, friends, here's the, the, the message, the challenge, the invitation, the encouragement, all wrapped up in one. There is real resurrection hope in Jesus Christ that is more real than anything you can see. It is more real than anything you can touch. And you know where it's hard for you to seek it. And you know where it's hard for you to celebrate it. But this Easter, may we all seek and celebrate the resurrection hope, the real resurrection hope that's found only in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth as a baby, that you lived the perfect life that we didn't. You died the death we deserved, and you rose again to offer forgiveness of sins to any who would trust in you. We thank you that the hope of a new life is offered because of your resurrection, that it's real. May we seek that real hope and celebrate that real hope this morning.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.